Do you know, right the way back in the opening part of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 29 to 39, you encounter what can only be described as the most messed up family that you have ever seen. Anyone who thinks the Bible is just full of stories of just really okay together people, uh, and any of you who struggle with that, that problem of I just don't feel good enough to be part of God's plans, go away and read Genesis 29 to 39. Because if you really look at these chapters on God's chosen family through this period and have a delve into what happened to them over this time, you see that by any standard, they were ridiculously dysfunctional and messy. In these chapters alone, I'm just going to give you some highlights of what we see them do in this. So, in these chapters alone, the dad of this family, Jacob, married not one but two of his cousins because his uncle cheating into marrying one that he doesn't love. Then, these two wives basically hate, fight and envy each other as they battle for the affections of their husband. And they try and bear the most children for him. As Jacob makes it clear that he loves one wife more than the other. And as part of this conflict, we see that one of the wives, Rachel, gets her husband to sleep with a servant girl to bear him a child on her behalf so she can get one up on her sister. In addition, Jacob has to try and avoid himself and his whole family being killed by his warlord brother, whom he cheated out of his inheritance when he was young as well. This was not like a comfortable, you know, what do you call them, like... Two, two parents, two children, home, what's that? Nuclear, Nuclear family, 2.4, all of those phrases. It's not, and, and actually, as a result of all of this messed upness, all of this stuff that's going on, you read that the children of this household, unsurprisingly, also have some issues. For example, uh, one in a, what is just a crazy story in the Bible One of the sons ends up sleeping with his dead son's ex-wife as she pretends to be a prostitute on the side of the road. I kid you not, that's in the Bible. And and worst of all, you know, these brothers, the brothers in this family, had a complete relationship breakdown. Much worse than when you just have families who don't talk for years and years and years. I mean, 10 of the 12 sons did an absolutely huge evil against one of their youngest brothers. Like one day when they were looking out of, after the family business together, out in the fields, they ganged up on him, they ripped the clothes from his back, they threw him into a pit and they sold him into a life of slavery. Then they caused their father agonising pain by lying to him and saying that his son was dead, having been killed by a wild animal because of unchecked jealousy and bitterness and frustration at their younger brother that had grown up amongst the brothers, they attacked, wounded, and completely, completely estranged themselves from their little brother, Joseph. Do you know, 
You can see, can't you, that Genesis 29 to 39 reads like, you know, maybe, maybe a soap opera script that didn't quite make it because they were like, do you know, do you know we, we just can't put that stuff on TV. We, we can't have it there. They were a family at the best that, uh, that had a mixed up idea of what was right and what was wrong. And at worst, they were guilty of great evil to one another. But this isn't my main point today, but I want you just to think about this for a moment, because I think it's really important. This was God's chosen family for ministering his grace to the world at that point. They were equivalent of the church today in their time. They're the ones he chose to display his goodness, his glory, his plans, his purposes to them. If you read all of these things, one thing to note is that none of them, none of them changed his love, plans, and purposes for them. None of them. If you struggle with a notion of, I can't be good enough. We had some great words today, didn't we? Chris is just like, look, he's overcome everything. I had a picture as Chris was, was talking about that, of like just barriers, barriers, loads of barriers, like hurdles, but bigger walls that we put up in the way of God and say, you can't come close to me. You can't come close to me. You can't come close to me. I'm a bit of a failure. You can't come close to me. I got this wrong. You can't come close to me. I know there's unbelief in my heart about this. You can't come close to me. I know I'm not even living up to a standard of righteousness. I know I'm still fleshly. You know what the gospel did? It broke down every single one of those. Every single one of those. It's grace. We see a picture of his grace to people. Do you know when he accepted you, when he chose you, he knew you were horribly messed up. He knew it all. Absolutely everything. He knew these people were horribly messed up. He knew it. Whatever, whatever is there causing shame or a sense of failure in your heart, he knew it. Yet in this moment, in this moment, you see clearly. Do you see clearly? He did not take his grace away from them. Instead, actually, what God does is he takes all of this mess, all of these moments, and he brings some incredible things for us to take hold of out of them as well. None more so when these brothers who knew nothing of the fate of their younger brother come face to face with him over 20 years on in life again. In a situation where the tables had completely turned, Genesis 42's tells us that this ver- these very brothers who did great evil to Joseph actually had to come before him seeking his complete mercy. They needed food when a great famine had hit the land. So they had to go to Egypt to barter for some of the grain that had been stored there, where unknown to them, Joseph had been raised up by God from the slavery they had sold him into and become a powerful leader, second only to Pharaoh and responsible for all the food storage and distribution in Egypt. The very one whom the brothers had gang attacked, sold into slavery, separated from his father, now held the very keys to their lives. These brothers who didn't even recognize him when they saw him because of how long their relationship had been broken. You know, if, if ever, 
if ever there was a moment for justified payback in history, this was it. For a proper road rage response. This was it. This was it. Joseph could have simply said, get out. Get out. Go from my sight. You go deal with this famine somewhere else and they would have deserved it. He could have left them to fend for themselves in the famine. Joseph could have said, throw them all in jail or kill them. And it would have been done. Without question, such was his power. They hadn't cared about his life. Why should he give them monkeys about theirs? Joseph could have tortured them. Never let them see their father again. Sister, mother or brothers again. They hadn't cared about his relationship with the family. Why didn't he just do to them so they could understand it fully? So they could really get what it felt like, what they'd done to him, so they could really be repentant. Joseph could have just given them as slaves to his nation, to anyone he now rules over. Let them know a life of slavery. But he doesn't give them what they deserve. Nor does he act out or store up the wrongs that have been done to him. Instead, in this moment, we read he does this. Genesis 45, 1-7. Then Joseph could no longer control himself and said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Come close. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. The one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh Lord of his entire household and a ruler of Egypt. Do you see this? Joseph doesn't live and react out of the hurt that has been done to him. Instead, he lives out of the grace and favour and goodness of what God has done in his life. He recognises it. And it's on this foundation that he responds to his brothers. Not in payback, not in judgement, but in a different thing entirely. Reconciliation, the bringing together of two broken parties. You know, the final six to seven chapters are devoted to this one thing, if you read Genesis. They're completed, completely devoted to Joseph's efforts to gather his messy EastEnders-like family back together and restore everything that was broken in the moment when his brothers threw them into the pit. Every relationship that was broken he sought to restore and to bring his family into the same grace and favour that God had shown him. 
You know, Genesis, in many ways, is God's foundation digging book. It's where God lays some of the big stones of understanding that all of the centuries of teaching that come afterwards can be laid upon. It contains all of the big principles, the big parts of God's story that he wants his people to build into their lives and build their lives upon. Who he is, who we are made to be, how he wants his people to live. So we see some huge theological things happen in Genesis, don't we? Like God the creator being behind absolutely everything, foundation stone. Like man being made from dust into his image, foundation stone. Like the fact that man's nature and relationship with God is damaged and broken because of man's decision to reject God, foundation stone. And we see God bless Abram by, by grace, don't we? And him receive that by faith. Blessing given and received by faith. Foundation stone. But I think we can miss this. That the final foundation stone that he lays in Genesis, the final full stop of this foundation laying book, highlights his deep desire for us to live like Joseph did. To take the grace and favour that has been shown us, And out of that, bring reconciliation and peace to messy, broken relationships around us. The final bit of Genesis clears up for us once and for all whether God is finally a God of judgment or a God of something else. Yes, there's judgment in Genesis. We see it on Sodom and Gomorrah and those people who are just headstrong going down that path of evil. But what we see here is that the final thing we see about God's character is that he loves to bring back together broken relationships. This is his heart. This is the foundation that he wants us to grasp right at the beginning of the Bible and build the rest of our lives upon. Do you know what's so interesting here that if you genuinely genuinely look at this foundation of reconciliation, you realise that it's, it's not an easy foundation to lay. You see that reconciliation is hard. It is costly for all involved. Actually, we see it take six, seven chapters at the end, spanning years in this instance, to truly be established here. Trust in relationship takes time to be rebuilt. You know, we see firstly that it's really hard for the one doing the reconciling, Joseph. And, you know... For Joseph's part, not only does he have to overcome, does he have to lay down the hurt that's been done to him? Does he have to die to it and live to the grace that has been shown him instead? But actually, he has to, he has to know that his brother's hearts have changed. So actually, we see, we see two chapters devoted to him testing his brother's heart, saying, look, brothers, have you changed? Are you still going to do this kind of evil to a brother if it gets you out of trouble? You know, these show us that to be a reconciler, you have to overcome hurt and fear. Hurt and fear. Fear that you're going to get hurt again to really be reconciled. And the hurt that was done to you initially. And you need to replace them with forgiveness and faith. But 
actually more than this. The ones being reconciled, we see, struggle to come to terms with the extent of the forgiveness they receive. The ones being reconciled struggle to come to terms with the extent of the forgiveness they have received. You know, initially we saw it, didn't we, in that bit that I read. They were terrified of him. They were terrified of him coming before them. They faced all the shame and dismay of what they'd done face on. Oh my goodness, we thought this was done with. Never thought I was going to deal with that problem. Never thought, never thought that was going to come back to haunt me. Ow! There you are, you're right in my face. What do I do with that? I'm terrified and you're all powerful. But even later, even years later, after Joseph had brought them into protection of his household, they were already protected through the famine by this point. When their father dies, Genesis 50, 15 to 21, tells us he has to reassure his brothers again that this reconciliation would not turn into judgment at any point, at any point in their lives, that he would look after them and their children's children. Look, they came to him, fearful, we're told. Please forgive us the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. This is years later. They've already known grace and favor and blessing. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept as they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you know, for the ones being reconciled, they had to overcome shame, didn't they, to draw close to their brother. But also they had to overcome fear overcome fear that this wasn't true, that the extent of the grace and favour that they'd been shown was true. It was thorough. True reconciliation is hard. Joseph was never going to take that away. He was living out of the grace of God. But here we see in Genesis that God wants to put the spotlight on this very hard thing, on this very hard foundation This is what I'm about. This is what I want my people to be about. A reconciliation that doesn't live out of the hurts done, but lives out of the grace shown from a deeper place, a fuller understanding. A reconciliation that, like Joseph, overcame hurt and fear, walks gently, people through gently shame and fear, and causes people to be drawn back together where brokenness, and wrongdoing have separated them and brings them into the grace and favour of God. If you've not been here, this whole series is called Gospel Giving Living. It's like a tongue twister. And the premise of it is that the gospel is God's riches lavished on us, poured out on us completely. Not that we might keep them, store them up, just know them for ourselves but that we may in return lavish them on other people. 
so that they may come to know the goodness through us as we are ambassadors of those things. We take from the gospel and we live it out to other people. We model it for other people. And you know, reconciliation, like Joseph, is another key way. God wants us to understand what he has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he wants us to do as a result with our lives and relationships. In fact, the, the Bible really wants us to understand that Joseph's story, as well as a foundation, is actually just a, a pointer, amazing as it is, to a far greater reconciliation. What Jesus did in the gospel. And there are a number of key pointers where we show the key verses. Romans 5.10 For while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Colossians 1.21-22 once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Perhaps my favourite. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's just stay on this one just for, just for a second this morning. The first thing we see in this, and the other verses tell us, is that like with Joseph's story, the gospel is all about God taking a completely broken relationship. One that is just as far as you could possibly imagine and bringing it back together, knitting it completely back together. Only this time, it was God's way of taking mankind who had become so distant from him that they didn't even remember he existed half the time and reforging that family relationship where, like Joseph, he wasn't concerned with what we had done. He wasn't living out of that. Only that our hearts were changed completely. So that once again we could be in relationship with him. It's a strange picture, but hopefully it'll become clear. Look, if you don't know the good news of Jesus Christ, it's this. That your relationship with him is broken. It's not what he intended it to be. And that because of this, broken relationship, you don't work quite right either. That there's sin in your life, ways of living and thinking and behaving that damage yourself and others and that are actually offensive to God, that mean you sit under his judgment because of it. But God loved you so much that he didn't want to leave you like this. He didn't want the final say to be, 
judgment. But just like in Genesis, he wanted the final note, the final foundation in your life to be reconciliation. So he sent his son to earth to magnify and focus his glory and goodness. So you could see clearly the God of healing, the God of forgiveness, the God who came to be with the poor and lost, to challenge corruption and evil, to see him clearly. Then he sent this magnification of his glory. Jesus, his begotten son, to die on a cross in your place. Where he literally took the judgment and the punishment of all mankind's wrong behaviour and broken relationship. Everything that their broken relationship with him had brought upon them. Everything that was wrong in human nature upon himself. He took all the punishment we deserve in our place. So like Joseph, he died to any wrong that had been done to him. But then because he was the magnified glory of God, death couldn't hold Jesus. The weight of the whole world's punishment could not hold him, and he rose again to life, overcoming death and sin completely, and returned victoriously over the thing that had held mankind captive to be with God in ever more unbroken, untainted relationship. And now we read, as he's alive, he sends his Holy Spirit to continue the focusing and the magnifying of his work and freely lets people share in his death over their sin and old nature and his resurrection into a new life, a new nature where there is victory over sin and a fresh, restored relationship with God. See, the gospel is an action that fixes a broken relationship by one party, God, choosing to take all of the hurt on themselves and die to it, helping another party have a complete change of heart and nature and giving them complete forgiveness and restored right relationship with him. And all the other party has to do is not be so ashamed of their lives that they can't accept it and trust by faith that this is what God wants to do on their behalf. The gospel is a great act of reconciliation. If you stand in Jesus, if you put your trust in him, he gives you this. You're reconciled. You're reconciled. And some of our greatest problems as Christians stem from that issue, like the brothers, actually, that we just don't realise that he's never going to take that away or change it, that we stand in that. Something he has done once and for all, eternally. But we also see another thing in this passage. Because of this reconciliation, we are to take up the ministry of reconciliation and be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. In other words, we are meant to show people on God's behalf what God's reconciliation looks like on behalf of our king. How does this work in life? Well, what Paul's talking about here is first we take out the message of reconciliation. This is a call to evangelism. Listen, there there is an act in history that reconciles people to their creator, that fixes everything. It was the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit, the complete gospel, that fixed it. You know it. You know the fruit of it. You know the truth of it. 
You have it. It has been given to you. What do you do with it? You're now an ambassador of that message. Do you know, evangelism is not some hard thing that leaders keep making you do. It's not. If you get it, if you get the power of this message, both in your life and for the lives of others, it is something that you naturally become an ambassador of. To take out, to speak over people, to give to people freely like God gave it to you freely. He wants you to be an ambassador of the message of reconciliation that you hold in all circumstances. But secondly, do you know, I've already touched upon it, there is a big teaching in the New Testament that we are to be like Joseph with our relationships and the relationships of our lives. To the best of our ability, modelling the reconciliation God has shown us to others. You know, go to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus laid the foundations of the new covenant. And Jesus says this explicitly. Matthew 5 23 to 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and afterwards come and give your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get anything until you've paid the last penny. There's some incredibly strong teaching here. Like Jesus just, he he never pulls punches, does he? Just here it is, clear down the line. The first half of this passage, 22 to 24, essentially says that if you were in broken relationship with anyone, if you have wronged them or if there's something you're aware of that has damaged your relationship with them, it is more important that you go and that you seek reconciliation, that you continue standing before the altar of God in that time, before you offer your worship to God. It's a Jewish emphasis here of temple worship, but the language here is urgent, urgent and immediate. Such is the importance that you model reconciliation in life, that even if you are in the process of worship, first go and be reconciled where relationship is broken. Then come back and offer your gift of worship. It's challenging, isn't it? It's really challenging. I mean, how many of you have been in worship one Sunday or prayer, offering something to God, and just been reminded by the Spirit that you've got You've not done everything you can to solve a broken relationship and just dropped everything and gone. Have you done that? I find that deeply challenging. Jesus is saying here that this is really important in the new kingdom foundations. That where there's broken relationships, you look to restore them. The second part, 25 to 26, repeats this urgency, but using an idea, and it gives us an idea of why this urgency is needed. It uses a legal analogy of going from a personal conflict to one where the judge is involved to one where you could end up in prison. And it's simply saying this, that if you don't reconcile relationships, the impact and consequences of that can grow and grow and grow for yourselves and others. Do you know, know, as a pastor and In my other work in probation, I've seen this time and time again in marriages, friendships, teams, where over time, because 
we've harboured and, and like hold on to unchecked irritation, bitterness, frustration to someone, undealt with hurt, unspoken wrongs lodging in our hearts. You know, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. The way that we think and feel about that person and judge that person starts to change. And people's paths start to diverge. Distance creeps in where closeness was there before. We feel that same bitterness that Joseph's brothers did towards him. And something, something final will then happen in that relationship. And it's broken. All of our behavior and our judgment looks justified to us. And all of theirs is seen through the bad motives and hurt that swells in us. And we're estranged. And the consequences of this type of broken relationship can be huge. Families and churches and whole communities can be affected and harmed by these dynamics. And our ability to minister the gospel of grace is damaged. Nothing looks less attractive, does it, than walking into a church where there's just clearly broken relationships. It just looks hypocritical, doesn't it? They say they've known the amazing, unmerited forgiveness and reconciliation of God in their own lives, yet they don't show it to each other. You know, it's not an easy thing. I know in my own life that wherever I am wronged, my first impulse is to go, why am I justified in this and why are they wrong? And my response is defensive and angry. I could take you back just a couple of weeks where, um, where it's been the case, couldn't I, Chris? <laughs> you know, like, but actually, you know, there's a, there's a sense at which actually we need to come back to Scripture and learn from this and do it. And I want to encourage you, like, actually, as a, as a team, we do, we do have these moments, don't we, actually? Yeah, well, you know, how long have we known each other now, mate? Like, some stupid amount of time, like 15 years, 15 years. And, like, we've had loads of these times, loads of these times, where you just have to deal with it. You have to come back and seek reconciliation. But this is my heart. It is. It's hard. And then you have to know, go, no, look, I've got I've to actually die. I've got to own something of what I've done wrong here. But it's a challenge, and I've got to come back to the grace that has been shown me, the reconciliation that's been shown me, and I've got to live, I've got to keep living out of that. Look, listen closely, please, to this bit. It is an inescapable fact in life that we are going to offend and be offended by others, especially in church. More of the, most of the time, the more close we get to people, the more likely it is that this will happen because we see more of their faults and they see more of our faults. You can't keep a veneer when you really know each other. Why? Because when God's new chosen soap opera family right here. But we are called to be the one who seeks reconciliation, both when we have been wronged and have wronged others. It's hard. And I just want to just commend these guys, both to you as leaders, who model that and have modelled that in my life. They've come to me and said, here we go, look, let's be reconciled. The Bible's so clear on this. It's not always possible, but Romans 12, 18 tells us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
as far as it depends on you, as quickly as possible. As soon as you recognize something is wrong, you are to seek to be a minister of reconciliation. Not seeking to act out the hurt that has been shown you, but seeking out to act out the great reconciliation that God has shown you undeservedly. Do you know, I, I want to finish with this. In the same way that the consequences of living hardened, unreconciled lives have negative consequences, if we learn this aspect of gospel giving living, if we get it, if we live it out, the consequences are phenomenal. Let me leave you with a story. On the left is Francois uh, Natambara. On the right is uh, Epiphany Mukamasoni, something like that. Do you know, in the Rwandan genocide of 1994, Epiphany's son was brutally murdered. Francois was the man who did it. And just because of the sheer numbers of people in prison and the swelling burden on the penal system in Rwanda, he was released very quickly back into the community. The community where he had previously lived with Epiphany, and Epiphany still lived. As you would expect, at first her response to having the man who had murdered her son coming to live back in her town was one of shock and horror. Epiphany describes being scared, angered, and at grief with this man and his crimes. And she would hide when she saw him. And Francois describes knowing no peace because of the horrors of what he had done with his own hands when the war had finished. The pain he had caused. But this relationship was about as far apart as you could get. Shame and hurt and fear separated it. And many of you will know, though, that one of the incredible things that happened in Rwanda is that the government put in schemes to teach people about the power of reconciliation, the ability to heal and transform. And both of these went to one of these groups. And following a reconciliation meeting from their own mouths, in a recent interview with both, Francois said this, in the genocide perpetrated in 1994, I participated in the killing of the son of this woman. We are now members of the same group of unity and reconciliation. We share in everything. If she needs some water to drink, I fetch some for her. There's no suspicion between us, whether under sunlight or during the night. I used to have nightmares recalling the sad events I've been through and the things I have done. But I now sleep peacefully. And when we are together, we are like brother and sister. Epiphany said this. He killed my child. Then he came to me to ask my pardon. I immediately granted it to him. I was pleased in the way that he had testified to the crime instead of keeping it in hiding. Because it hurts if someone keeps in hiding a crime committed against you. Before, when I had not yet granted him pardon, he could not come close to me. I treated him like my enemy. But now, I would rather treat him like my own child. Hopefully, none of us will ever have to reconcile with the murder of our child. But do you see it? The power of healing, peacemaking, and how it overcomes hurt. It has such power. Costly 
personal reconciliation is underscored as central to God's kingdom throughout the Bible. It's the full stop of Genesis, central to the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the ways that God wants you to understand what he has done for you on the cross. You have been reconciled to him at great cost, a cost he is happy to pay, that you would know the greatness of restored relationship with him, the security and peace of being with him. Like Joseph's brothers were drawn out of a famine into his kingdom's safety. And nothing will ever change what he has done. No messiness in your life or family or former deed will ever break the love of God and the reconciliation he has founded for you. The gospel is the greatest act of reconciliation in all time. So how are your relationships? How is your life? Are you living out of this grace, forgiveness, and a sheer wonder in this act? Taking the message of reconciliation to those around you? Or do people not get a taste of this message when they're with you? Do you live out of heart, hurts done to you, harbour seeds of frustration? Seek to give them, people back, what you feel they deserve? Or are you about advancing the kingdom of God and the reconciliation he wants to show to people? I just invite the Holy Spirit. You stand with me a second. Just um. Do you know what? David just said, search me. Search me, Lord. Come, come and search me and let me just, I just know. I just feel like the Lord wants to just come and bring courage. Firstly, I think he wants to just come and bring security again. There's such a need for you to know the security of the extent of what God has done in your life. To know. And he'll tell you over and over and over and over again until you get it. He's reconciled you to himself and nothing will change that. But he wants us to overflow with the riches of that reconciliation. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your word, Lord God. Thank you so much, Father God, for that foundation of reconciliation. Spirit, I just pray, Lord God, that we would get it in our lives. Spirit, I pray that you're you would just come and put it in us, Lord Jesus. Come and let it flow out of us. Come and help it be our first response, Lord Jesus. King of kings, King of kings, would you come? And Spirit, we just pray, would you search us now, Lord God? If we're harboring the seeds of broken relationship, Lord God, anywhere in our lives, Lord Jesus, anywhere in our lives, Lord God, Spirit, would you come and would you just garden our hearts, Lord God? Would you come and highlight? Would you come and pull out? Would you come and replace shame and fear with trust and faith, Lord God, and security? Spirit of God, Father God, we want to see many broken relationships restored, Lord God. We want to see the power of reconciliation in and amongst our community. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come and accomplish that in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.